Uh, please open your Bibles at Romans 8, and we're going to be thinking this morning about the, the first four verses uh, in this chapter, Romans chapter 8, 1 to 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, or literally for sin. And so he condemned sin in sinful man, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Well, we are in for a treat over the next few weeks because this is a wonderful chapter. Uh, chapter 8 of Romans. If you ask uh, many uh, leading theologians and preachers, what, what would you say is the best chapter in the Bible? Well, it's a hard question, but many of them I would point to this chapter as being what they regarded as the greatest chapter in the Bible. Uh, take, for example, what Sinclair Ferguson says. Uh, he says it is the greatest chapter in the Bible, profound in theology, soaring in eloquence, and thrilling in impact. But you know the problem as a preacher when you come to a chapter like this is you feel your, your weakness, your limitation. And you wonder, how am I going to uh, do justice in proclaiming such a wonderful, soaring chapter? So it's been my prayer that the Lord would come and would make me something of a, of a lightning conductor for the thrill of the chapter, that it might simply come across uh, as what it truly is, the, the most profound exposition of the, the work of God, uh, especially God the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Now, it's maybe uh, useful for us just to catch breath a little bit and remind ourselves of the roadmap of Romans. Uh, we said at the beginning that this letter, this great uh, doctrinal tract, is about righteousness. It's basically about righteousness, the righteousness of God. And the, the, the master theme, the key to the book, if you like, is found in Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, which speaks about a righteousness from God. And Paul begins uh, by demonstrating uh, from chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, that our problem as people is that we don't have righteousness. We don't have a righteousness that would fit us for heaven. And then from 3.21 uh, on to 5.21, Paul goes on to show us the remedy for our problem. We don't have righteousness. God has provided us with righteousness. And we have 321 to 521, the great doctrine of justification by faith. God has done in Christ what we could not do for ourselves. God has provided for us in Jesus what we do not have in ourselves. He has given us his righteousness. Uh, then uh, from 522, uh, or 
from chapter 6, 1 rather, uh, through to chapter 8, we're dealing with uh, sanctification or righteous living. Uh, and then chapters 9 to 11, uh, we see God's righteous dealings with the Jews and the Gentiles. And then in the end section of the book, from chapters 12 to 15, we have righteous living in society, uh, in the church, and in the family, the practical outworking of righteousness. So chapter 8 uh, falls under the section of righteous living, or sanctification. Uh, the emphasis is on the role of the Holy Spirit in enabling us to live for God. And you'll see that the, the Holy Spirit is mentioned uh, numerous times. Uh, chapter 7 has been preoccupied with the law. Now the focus is on the Spirit. Uh, 19 times in the first 27 verses uh, we have mention of the Spirit. Uh, and yet, it's the Spirit as largely the Spirit of adoption. And therefore the Trinity is brought into view because uh, the Spirit uh, brings us into relation with God as Father. Uh, through Jesus Christ, who is our elder brother. Now, if we are to say, and we say rightly, that chapter 8 is about sanctification, uh, holy living in the power of the Spirit, a major emphasis is, um, is, is on our security. Our security as a result of the role of the Spirit in our lives. The believers rock solid security and we have this throughout the chapter the chapter begins no condemnation and the chapter ends no separation and throughout there is this ringing affirmation of our security as believers from verses 1 to 13 uh, we have teaching on what it is to be led by the spirit Verses 14 to 27, we have a view of a life of reassuring sonship. Verse 28 to the end, we have a life of purposeful security. The leading of the Spirit, reassuring sonship, purposeful security. Wonderfully pastoral and comforting in its design, and especially as it follows on from chapter 7. Uh, with its reality check of the struggle within. Here is the counterpart to the reality of the fact that we struggle with sin. We are kept by the power of God unto salvation. The problem for which chapter 8 is the answer is this. How can a believer who has discovered within himself the reality, the fearsome reality of conflict with sin, have assurance that they will be saved. How can we have that assurance? Joe Novison, uh, an American Presbyterian minister, he is minister, uh, I think he still is, at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church in Tennessee. It's a great name for a church. And on one occasion, he, while he was still doing his divinity studies, he wanted to go and he wanted to speak to uh, a fallen hero of his. Fallen hero of mine, I would probably say. Uh, 
a man who has written a lot of very useful books, and I've got a few of them on my own uh, study shelves, Gordon MacDonald, uh, who had been the, the minister in a large uh, Baptist church in New England, in America. He had been head of InterVarsity Fellowship in America, which is the equivalent of our Christian Union movement in the UK. But Gordon MacDonald fell into sin. He had an affair with his church secretary. Uh, he had to leave the presidency of IVF and the ministry for a period. And yet, he was a believer. And he was contrite. And he was repentant. And he did what he could to confess himself uh, and his sin publicly and to rectify the wrong, the chaos that his sin had caused. And Joe Novenson wanted to go and to talk, to talk with him and to learn uh, some of the hard truths from him about what it was uh, to go through this kind of experience and to return from it. And during the conversation, Gordon MacDonald said to Joe, Now, Joe, you're a Calvinist, right? And Joe responded a bit sheepishly, Well, yes, that's right. And he continued, so you understand, Joe, that there's enough evil in you to destroy the world three times over? He said, yes. Gordon MacDonald said to him, Joe, I didn't believe that, and I paid the price. The reality of indwelling sin. But that situation frames in a stark way the question, doesn't it? How does somebody like that, how does somebody like Gordon MacDonald, who falls uh, in... Uh, in a terrible way, a, a frighteningly shocking way, have reassurance that there's no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. So, verse 1, we have this ringing declaration, uh, there is now no condemnation. No condemnation, as we'll see, from sin's guilt and power. Second, verses 2 and 3, we see how this is achieved. God uh, has achieved it through the sending of his Son in the likeness of human sin. And we see in verse 4, the purpose for which God sent his Son, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, that we might be holy people. So, first of all, no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When I was looking at these verses, they, they, they are more difficult than they appear on the surface. And I have to say, I was really helped by uh, Professor John Murray's commentary on Romans. It's not always the easiest commentary, but it's the most, I think, the, the most painstaking uh, commentary in terms of grappling with the, the exegesis and the context. And Murray points out that uh, what is in view in these verses is not just justification. You might expect it to be the fact that uh, objectively we have been acquitted by Christ's death. He points out that as well as that, uh, we are looking at the reality of the inner life of the believer, our sanctification that the two are here. In fact, it's the inner life which is to the fore in what Paul is saying. But 
the two are present. And the very word condemnation flags up the fact that uh, we have confidence because of what Christ has done in justifying us. Because condemnation and justification are simply uh, the polar opposites. So we have confidence uh, because of the fact of our justification. What justification? It's that objective, concrete, legal act that has taken place in Christ. We are delivered from the guilt of sin. Christ has paid for that. Therefore, it's not held to our account any longer. We're given the perfect righteousness of Christ, like a clothing to cover our nakedness. It's a complete work. It's a legal declaration that we're not guilty. The court has acquitted us. The verdict is a good one. You're not guilty because of what Christ has done. Uh, Condemnation is the opposite. And we're not condemned. We're acquitted. And this has been Paul's message from chapter 5. Therefore, being uh, justified by faith, we have peace with God. Sorry, it's been his message from chapter 3 through to 5 and culminates in what he says at the beginning of chapter 5. We have peace with God uh, through Jesus Christ being justified by faith. Jesus' death has met the full penalty of the law. The law no longer has power to condemn me. The record of my my breaches of the law, my disobedience and my failure to be what God wants me to be has been nailed to the cross. It's been taken away. The cross has been emptied. And there is no longer a record for Satan to use to accuse me, uh, to undermine my confidence. Jesus took that record with him to the cross. And when I am dismayed, when I feel condemned, I look at the empty cross and I remind myself of the condemned one who was condemned in my place and who bore my sin away. There is no condemnation any longer. I am justified through Jesus Christ. But this freedom from condemnation also has reference to the struggle that uh, I have within as a believer. Uh, it's good news for people like Gordon MacDonald uh, who fail uh, spectacularly as it was good news for the Apostle Paul who cried out in the, the intensity of his struggle, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Uh, and now we're not talking about the fact that we're right with God. We're thinking about the internal workings of the heart. The, the power of sin to cast us down and depress us and deflate us and defeat us. Uh, the times when Satan will come and say, how can you call yourself a Christian when you have done those kind of things, when you've had those kind of thoughts? And it's to this threat that the gospel speaks and says no condemnation. Think of it like this. Uh, a person is awaiting a court hearing serious offence, uh, say embezzlement. Uh, he knows that he's guilty. Over his head there is hanging uh, this cloud of condemnation. Uh, now, strictly speaking, the sentence hasn't been made effective yet, uh, but in another sense, it has 
begun to take a powerful effect on his life because uh, he is inwardly defeated. Uh, he has been robbed of all uh, motivation uh, to look after himself. Uh, he's forgetful of his appearance. He can't summon energy to do his everyday activities. He is completely under the power of that crime, of that judgment. But supposing he is a benefactor uh, who intervenes in his life. He makes restitution to all of the offended parties. Pays back the money that the accused had embezzled. And on the day of the trial, he rises to his defence, he demonstrates that everything has been paid for, and he takes the man home and he treats him with warmth and a love that he's never known before. There are two things that change. Two things. There's no longer a guilty verdict on him. He has been cleared and he left the court as an innocent person. But secondly, the paralyzing power of failure is gone. He has been removed from a prison cell to the care and the protection of this powerful benefactor. And new energy floods his life. And although he has to work through a lot of issues, clearly, nevertheless, he does so along with this new uh, benefactor, this new power, this new force for good that has come into his life. Now that's the double sense in which we are freed from condemnation. You should really have sung uh, Top Lady's hymn, Rock of Ages, this morning. I think I had intended to. But it has this tremendous line in it which captures uh, what we're saying here. Be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. And that's what the gospel does. It delivers us from uh, the, the, the double menace of sin. The guilt of sin and the power of sin over our lives. And it's from both of these things that we are now liberated, freed from condemnation. Notice it's for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's an important truth. Because it's something which uh, the world outside doesn't recognize. The, the world thinks that God is like an indulgent grandfather who, who wants everybody to be happy, you know? And he's never going to hold anything against them because that would be bad to be judgmental. But the Bible tells us that God is a holy God. And not only does he have holy standards, he upholds his holy standards. And he will bring wrath upon those uh, who disobey him or fail to, to be what they are called to be. Not just the sin, but the sinner experienced the just and the terrible wrath of God. And deep down in our hearts, even before we're Christians, we know that we can't take our shame and guilt with us into heaven, into the presence of God and his holiness. It has to be dealt with. And only by being placed in Christ by faith can we know freedom from condemnation. And therefore, if you're not in Christ this morning, let me plead with you above all else, above all other considerations, trust in Jesus. 
believe into Jesus because only in Christ is there no condemnation. Outside of Christ, there is condemnation. Outside of Christ, you can't stand on that last day. But if you know that you are in Christ, then you will have confidence today and when he comes, that there will be nothing brought against you. Verses 2 and 3, we come to the message of how God has achieved our freedom from condemnation. Uh, he has done so by sending his Son, because, uh, verse 2, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be sinful offering or for sin and so we condemn sin in the sinful man because the linking word is always important it tells us uh, that Paul is giving an explanation to us as to why we are free from condemnation we are free from condemnation because through Christ Jesus the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Our problem is the law of sin and death. Paul's spoken about this at great length already. There's a brute force in every person uh, because of the fall, because of, of sin coming into the world. There is this uh, malignant energy in our lives that will always pull us away from pleasing God. And Paul says that there's a new situation in the lives of Christians. Uh, this law of sin and death is now overcome by the law of the spirit of life. The spirit of life? The Holy Spirit. None other than that. The Holy Spirit who comes into our lives when we trust in Christ. The third person of the Trinity. He's taken up residence in your life if you are in Christ. He's at work unleashing his power in the struggle. And he alone is able to overcome the law of sin and death in your life. The Spirit can do what the law couldn't do, what you can't do in your own strength. The law could not restrain sin because of your sinful nature. Viewers of Panorama last week uh, watched footage taken by an undercover agent, uh, or undercover reporter, at Her Majesty's Prison, Northumberland. And it was a picture of the intimidation of prison officers, uh, of drug-taking on a huge scale, uh, of rioting and lawlessness. Uh, and as the reporter said, it did not take long to realise that it was the prisoners who were actually in charge. The law, the rule of law, was powerless in the face of this anti-law energy. And it's the same spiritually. With each person before conversion, sin rules, okay. God is disregarded. And the law only stirs up our rebellion. And now, Paul says, now there is this new energy, this new law at work. And Paul is calling on us to contemplate how wonderful is the fact that the Spirit, uh, who is the Spirit of life, 
uh, has come uh, into our lives. In Ephesians chapter 1, he's doing the same thing. Uh, His prayer for the Ephesians is that the eyes of the heart might be enlightened, uh, that they might understand the surpassing greatness of God's work uh, in their lives. Uh, that, That power, he says, is the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead and caused him to ascend on high, uh, leading captivity captive, so that now he is at the right hand of God, from which place he is ruling the world for good. And that power, that resurrection, that ascending power, Paul says, is at work in the life of the believer. There is this new uh, law at work in our lives, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Notice three things. It's what God has done, what we couldn't do. God has done what we couldn't do. Only by the intervention of God can we be free from condemnation. Our confidence that we are free from being condemned rests not on what we are or what we're doing, but on what God has done and God is doing. For what the law could not do, God did. See what he's saying? Paul's saying, don't look at yourself and what you're doing or not doing. Look at God and what God has done, what God is presently doing in your life. He's the source. He's the author. How do you have freedom from condemnation even although you're struggling with sin? You can have freedom from condemnation because you know that your confidence is not based on you, but based on him. God did. God did. It's the first thing Paul wants us to see. Second, he did this by sending his own son. He sent his own son. Even the wording of that is tender, isn't it? He didn't say, Paul doesn't just say he sent the son, he sent his own son. Often in the Bible, there's a, there's a pairing of his one and only son, or his only begotten son. God the Father had one son and enjoyed bliss eternally with him in communion of the Holy Trinity. And when the price of our freedom from condemnation was to give up his one son, He did not flinch from that. He gave up his only son. That's the breathtaking nature of the gospel. The costliness of our salvation. The love of God for us is such that he gave up his only son, the best he had. The great price for your freedom is Jesus Christ. And third, the son came in the likeness of sinful man for sin. You see, uh, the footnote in verse 3, a sin offering is actually a a gloss on the the Greek. It's actually for sin. It's simply for sin. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful man or in the likeness of the flesh for sin, to deal with sin. And there's a, a tender, a sensitive description of the incarnation here. It's in the likeness of sinful man. Jesus did not come in sinful humanity. That's a heresy. 
Uh, Jesus himself said, the prince of this world has no hold in me. There was no responsiveness in Jesus' perfect nature uh, to sin. And yet, he came as close as was possible to sin. That, I think, is what the expression, in the likeness of human sin, is expressing. The proximity to which Jesus came to sin without being sinful. He felt the power of temptation. When you and I are tempted, uh, the, the temptation may be strong, but so often we are weak that we give in. Uh, Jesus, being pure and sinless, sustained enduring temptation, prolonged temptation. The devil trained all his heavy artillery upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew the power, the forcefulness of temptation. He knew what it was to, to live as the only pure man in a, a filthy, shameful world. Uh, we have the picture of Jesus coming down with all of the, the, the reprobates and sinners into the Jordan River at the time of his baptism. And as was prophesied of him, he was numbered amongst the transgressors. At the end of the day, he dies between our two criminals. He is under the verdict of guilty at the end. He's misunderstood throughout his life. The Pharisees say that he was a, a, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He came in the likeness of sinful man in order that he might put sin to death, uh, bearing its guilt and shame. God has done this for us. God has acted uh, to remove our condemnation, through removing the guilt and the power of sin. And he did that by sending his only son in the likeness of sinful uh, humanity. Why did he do this? Thirdly, our last point, he sent his son that the requirements of the law might be met in us. In other words, that we might be holy. Uh, he sent his son to obtain a holy people. Now, this reference to the law is so significant in the context of all that Paul has said negatively about the law. Uh, he said a lot of negative things about the law. He said in verse 14 of chapter 6, we're not under law, but under grace. He said in verse 4 of chapter 7, so you also died to the law through the body of Christ. He's told us sin seizes the opportunity provided by the law. But nevertheless, the law is holy, righteous, and good. And now Paul is telling us that the reason that Jesus came was that the righteous requirements of the law might be met in us. He doesn't say for us, which is what justification is, Jesus keeping the law for us, but in us, that we might actually be more and more holy people. And you say, that's exactly the problem. I don't feel that's happening. I feel so much a failure. I don't feel I'm making progress. I feel sin's power over me. And what do we say in response to that? Well, we say something we've said already uh, this morning. 
that our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is not in how you are feeling this morning. Whether as a believer you're feeling the heat of the struggle or the guilt and shame of your failure, your confidence in being free from condemnation is based on what God says. And he says that you have been separated from the guilt of sin because of Christ offering himself in your place. And you're free from the enslavement of sin because sin has been condemned through Christ's death and the Holy Spirit's new presence in your life is the thing that breaks that old regulating power of the law of sin and death. God is at work in the life of every believer through his Holy Spirit, and there is a new rule in force, the law of life, the spirit of life. And so on the days when you don't feel uh, these things, you need to get down on your knees and say to God, Lord, I don't feel that I'm doing well at all. But I believe your word nevertheless. I believe you've taken my guilt. And I believe the Holy Spirit is in my life helping me to move from sin and toward holiness. And the second point uh, with which we close is this. Your whole life as a Christian entails that movement from there to there. From sin to holiness. The law of sin and death to the law of life through the Spirit. It's a continual turning away from an old lifestyle and old affections and old commitments to a new lifestyle and new affections and new commitments. This year, 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Martin Luther uh, puts up his 95 Thesis. What's the first one? What's the, 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 the bugle call that sets the Reformation going? A rhetorical question. It's not the authority of the Scriptures. It's not justification by faith, although that's going to be the, the central issue. The first thing that Luther says is regarding repentance. This is what he said. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Luther had grasped the central uh, issue in the Christian life. Uh, the, the Christian life is, is not like instant coffee. Everything there delivered uh, in a wonder. It is a life of turning from one way to another. Every day, repenting. We sometimes think of repentance in a narrow sense. We think of repentance being uh, the moment I believe in Christ, I turn decisively from self and sin uh, to believe in Jesus. And we need to do that. We need to have that decisive moment of repentance. But Luther is grasping a really important truth that all of life as Christians is repenting. A movement from and towards something else. That should be encouraging for all of us. Friends, we are on a journey. We are not what we were once. We're not yet what we will be one day. 
we're moving from there to there. We're called to repentance. And we have the Holy Spirit, the blessed Holy Spirit, the Spirit of adoption uh, within our lives. And he who is for us is greater than the one who is against us. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for uh, its ring of confidence, this uh, triumphant cry that there is now no more condemnation. Lord, we pray that we will not only understand this, but that we will feel it deep within our lives, that we will live it out. Deliver us, we pray, from living as though we were defeated people. Help us to grasp uh, the, the triumph of Christ and to live by faith in him. A life of repentance, turning morning by morning, evening by evening, from the rule of sin to the rule of life. In Jesus' name we pray.